Welcome back to Significant Watches, everyone. This is episode 20. Excited to talk new releases and everything else on our mind in the world of watches. Let's go around the horn and introduce ourselves to the horological homies. First up, of course, gentleman dealer, Eric Wind. Eric, how are you doing today? Good, Tony. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Charlie just mentioned it, but at least uh, you'll be sending your assistant, it sounds like, up to... um, wind up watch fair here in Chicago this weekend. So I'm excited about that. And Charlie, I'm really sorry about calling you uh, Eric's assistant because I know you're so much more, but Charlie Dunn, uh, strictly vintage watches. How are you doing? What's going on, Tony? Thank you for the uh, kind introduction. I can't wait to give you a big hug when we uh, connect in Chicago this weekend. Hopefully we'll get Gabe to uh, take a flight out there and then we can make Eric jealous with a live stream or something of that nature. Yes. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be there this weekend, but uh, I'm feeling a little less grumpy today. So I think that should be a positive. That's good. I was about to say that's the Connecticut curmudgeon you're hearing, of course, Gabriel Benador. And I I can only imagine that Gabe would find um, various things to be frustrated about uh, in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. Um, It's not the most functional city in the world. Not to not to get political. It's not the intent here, but I'm not I'm not sure how much you would like Gabe. You know, thanks for joining us for episode 20, everyone. We are in the middle of summer here, basically. We took a week off to enjoy the the holiday weekend here in the States, I suppose. There's a little bit of a gap in the auction calendar, so not much to talk about in the world of auctions, which tends to be our bread and butter. So before we talk about any of the new releases that we're excited to jump into, Charlie, what are you excited about? you know, we mentioned that you're coming up here for Wind Up Watch Fair. What are you going to be showing off? What are you excited about? I think it's the first time Win Vintage will be making an appearance at a Worn and Wound event. So you can talk, can you talk a little bit about what you'll be bringing to the event? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is going to be my first Wind Up show. I'm really excited about it. I mean, uh, just out of curiosity, have any of us gone to the Wind Up show in the past? I know it's been in San Francisco as well as New York in the past, but have, have you been to it um, before, Eric? I have not. I feel like I have, but I was racking my brain, and I don't think I have <laughs> specifically. I've yeah, never so been. <laughs> my my understanding is it's kind of um, Warren and Wound's um, show where they cater towards a lot of the micro brands and entry level brands. Kind of put on a nice um, event for people in various cities where you can actually go and see a lot of the watches in person. So, I mean, there's a pretty good selection of brands that are participating in this year i saw um you know the likes of zodiac boliva um accutron as well as um Astor and banks a few other um people will be there like our friends um chase from oak and oscar as well as nick at patina will have his own booth so it's um it's gonna be a pretty cool uh show out i'm excited to attend my first one and um you know i'll, I'll be bringing a few uh affordable vintage watches as well as uh maybe try and grab a few other uh, heavy hitters uh, to take on the road with me, see how much I can uh, take under my insurance policy. So yeah, I mean, I'm, that's what I'm excited for. What about, what about you, Gabe? What are you excited for this week? Um, I picked up a couple of things recently, so I'm taking delivery of a couple of things. And I recently took delivery of uh, an Octo Finissimo. 
uh, in titanium with the titanium bracelet, which seems kind of out of character for me because uh, I try to stay away from these kinds of brands. But uh, it was kind of an irresistible moment in time, and it it was fun because the RM was released the next day. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you um, first why you why you decided you want to get that watch, Gabe, and then how long did you have to wait for it, if at all? So I, I'd always, um, I, I kind of dismissed it at first because it, the, the look of it really didn't speak to me for a long time. And this is the same effect that the Nautilus had for me when I first saw it when I was in probably high school when it was released, when the, the new ones were released. And it just kind of didn't speak to me at all, but I kind of got worn down and started to like it as it went on. And actually at the H10, I was sitting, I was seated at, at the dinner next to uh, the guy who designed the watch and he kind of asked me if I liked the watch and I didn't know who he was. And I was like, nah, it doesn't really work for me. And then he spent the next two hours convincing <laughs> me why this was worth my time and why it was, why it was actually a cool watch. And I kind of started to look at it at, in a different light. And then um, the Tadao Andao dial, the first Tadao Andao dial really kind of cemented it for me. And that's the one that I really wanted. But every time it comes up at auction, I'll bid and they just go higher than I want to spend on it. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my, one of my old, uh, indie dealers had this and he bought the new version and he asked me if I wanted it. And I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try. Finally, the price was right. And then, um, I, I really like everything about it except for the size. It's, it just wears big and I wish it was, you know, 38, like, 38 and a half. It's like a know. gladiator cuff is how I compare it. Like it's so wide. Exactly. Like, and, and, you know, I don't have small wrists necessarily. And I can kind of get away with some grubles and some other large, you know, 44, 42 millimeter large indies. But this one, this one really just sits a little bit big on my wrist, unfortunately. But yeah. it, it's titanium and it's paper thin and it's kind of the limit I would say of what I'm comfortable wearing with thinness, but I'm also impressed with the movement. I like the micro rotors. I I like the finishing as well. Um, I really like the bracelet. I think the bracelet is really a hit, but it is, it tapers and that the, uh, by, by the, the lug there, it, it's quite thick. It's quite chunky. I mean, I really wish they had a smaller version of this and maybe down the line they will, but, um, I think it would benefit a lot, uh, from, from a smaller version. So I'm just kind of into it kind of still in the honeymoon phase. Um, but you know, we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. Square watches in general often wear awkward, and if it's a, you know, if it's a thirty-two by thirty-two millimeter watch, it's going to feel very, very, very tiny. And then anything that's, you know, the same dimensions but in like the medium case sizes, they always feel really large, in my opinion. So I don't know if it's just the square phenomenon or if it's just, um, yeah, know. it's definitely it's definitely part of it. It it also just is a large watch um you know it, it, that and the way the, you know the way the lugs kind of flare out a little bit it makes it makes it wear even larger uh where i think it would actually benefit from being smaller and wearing larger but uh you know those are my two cents on it and i i'm enjoying it sometimes like a bracelet can make the big difference on square watches like the um the uh original monaco's actually any monaco and for that matter always feels like a gigantic you know it's it's just so massive on the wrist but for whatever reason the vintage 
um, was it an NSX or NSA bracelets that I think were paired on those things. Yeah. That actually can do it uh, pretty interestingly. It'll fit pretty well on your wrist when you're wearing it with just that bracelet alone. And maybe it's because it's such a narrow, um, you know, very slim kind of bracelet and a little bit more delicate than, um, you know, chunkier itself. But yeah, I mean, square watches in general are, are odd. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, and also, it, it's so flat, so it wears, it, it, you really feel the size kind of compressed right in your wrist. Whereas, you know, if yeah. it has a little bit of chunkiness, it can sit a little higher off the wrist. So, it, you know, my first foray to ultra thin watches. So we'll, we'll see what, what comes from it. But Is this uh, your first foray into that. micro rotors or have you gotten into uh, no, micro rotor no. pull routers <laughs> and Laurent before? I've had a Laurent Ferrier. I've had, you know, a couple of other, um, you know, I've had a 3712, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of micro rotors. I, I really enjoy them. I think they're, when they're done well, they're really done well. Um, you know, shout out to Romain Gauthier. He does a great micro rotor as well. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be said about a good, about a great micro rotor uh, watch, which is, which is nice. And this one, um, this one, has a has a really nice feel to the movement of the rotor it's not uh it doesn't have that kind of i don't know how else to explain it but the the patek feel of their rotors which i it's kind of a love it or hate it feeling um so so that's that's nice I, overall really impressed especially at the, the original retail price which i think was like 10 or twelve thousand when it, when they were released um very very impressed a lot of watch a lot of detailing and a lot of uh really good thought went into this so kudos to bulgari what about you tony anything you're excited in in the uh in the world of watches well so wind up watch fair should be exciting here in chicago i'm excited that you're coming coming up because usually it's kind of a fair for the micro brands or the smaller brands of the world some of the larger ones like oris are starting to make a point of it as well so it's it'll be cool to have some sort of vintage uh presence there from from the one and only win vintage so definitely excited about that it's cool how wind up has become sort of uh this real flagship in at least the domestic watch market uh event space you know a lot of these micro brands even save releases for the the wind up watch fair in san francisco new york chicago our friends at oak and oscar he's doing a special limited edition um brass dial i think it was for his seventh anniversary so it's cool to see them doing something special that is you know maybe incentivizing people to come by and see the event in person but i've been dming with a lot of a lot of collectors a lot of brands just to be able to meet people in person that i've never been able to connect with in person before so exciting to have something like that in chicago and, and looking forward to it Eric, anything else you uh, are excited about since you're sending your your trusty uh, Charlie Dunn up here instead of coming up yourself? Um, well, a good friend of ours, Max Braun, is coming down to visit Palm Beach. That's why I could not come up because he would have been insanely depressed if I uh, if I said, sorry, you're coming into town. I have to leave. But uh, give him a follow at MRB Watches on Instagram. Uh, and Max used to live in Chicago, so he's uh, tight with uh, with Tony and Charlie and and me. But um, uh, I mean, I'm most excited about the Richard Mille Ferrari watch. Not, <laughs> but, 
that's what gets me excited these days. Um, you know, it's an, I mean, I actually, I think we should start with Gabe's thoughts. I, I always like starting from there. So Gabe, what do you think? I mean, it's, it's huge. It's so big and it's so thin. I feel like I'm going to get a paper cut just looking at it. You know, I feel like you sharpen it a little bit and you can use it as a razor blade. But I mean, the, it really is impressive. The amount of uh, G forces that it can withstand is impressive. But other than that, uh, I mean, it's like it's like a hundred thousand dollars per you know whatever it is per like millionth of a meter that thickness that it is. You know, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And at you know one point seven five, and it looks absolutely ridiculous on the wrist. I mean, do you see the pictures, the the promo pictures with Charles Leclerc wearing it like? The, Come on, okay. I mean, like I thought we were we were all about the lightness with RM that you could actually wear a watch, and I thought you know what is whatever it is a sixty seven oh one that's actually really thin and small. That was that was cool because it still felt like you're wearing a piece of RM design. Um, this this doesn't feel like yeah I don't I, I don't know it doesn't work in any way, especially aesthetically for me. Eric, what about your thoughts on this? Obviously, you, I mean, I remember you texted me in the middle of the night and were so excited about it and placed your your order. So, I mean, tell us your thoughts on the RM. Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I'm happy that people are tr- striving to beat records in the world of watchmaking, you know around thinness and things like that. So I have to take the positives here. Um, You know, I want watch companies to try to make thinner watches. Generally, that's been a big issue, as everyone knows. So I want the movement makers to work on making thinner movements, like vintage style watches. And I would uh, like them to continue to achieve better accuracy and less frequent servicing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but, um, no, I mean, it's 1.8 million is a lot. I've been kind of asking around if any are hitting the secondary market. There doesn't seem like there's a strong demand for these things on the secondary market. I don't think they will be selling above retail. Maybe if this was six months ago in our superheated economy, um, in the wake of the 5711 Tiffany and everything else, maybe this watch would be above retail. But um, at this time, I don't really think it will be. And uh, I don't know. It's a kind of a crazy thing at that price. We really didn't need a third shape in the RM arsenal um, after, especially the, you know, the round cases just never really sold particularly well. We really didn't need this like ultra thin, whatever shape this is you want to call it that it doesn't work you know and also part of part of you know part, i assume part of the appeal for most people who buy rms is their recognizability and uh, i don't think there's any recognizability i mean imagine going to the club wearing this thing on your wrist and trying to like <laughs> you know show off and trying to like you know dance with it and up up and nobody's nobody's gonna they're gonna be like what is, what is that you know, it, there there was this. Um, you remember the Azimuth brand? They they used to do these like uh, kind of affordable indie cool watches. This feels like something they would have put out. 
honestly. That's that's the way that's the way I imagine it. That's awesome. I can't imagine any part of that scenario. I can't imagine going to a club. I can't imagine wearing an RM. Like I'm I'm way past that that period in my life. Uh I think the whole Although this, <laughs> Tony, you were dancing at a wedding this weekend. That was all over Instagram. All over I was all over Instagram. That's true, Eric. Thanks <laughs> for that. I was impressed yeah. with the moves. It was good. Well, let me tell you. Um okay, so yes, I went to a wedding in St. Louis this past weekend where I went to college and uh you know, anytime they play Nelly in the city of St. Louis, for those who for those who may not know, like you, you know, you're required to do certain things. And uh, you know, it was a pretty small wedding. They had gotten married in a small ceremony last year, and they they did a bigger one this year. And I felt obliged as a college friend of of the groom to to turn up and make sure it was a party. You know, they'd been waiting for this for for two years because of COVID and everything else. So so I felt was- certain obligations to to get on the dance floor and, and show everyone what I had and strap on the Richard Mel as as Gabe's as Gabe said. <laughs> So for those for those that don't know, actually, Tony was one of the founding members of the Saint Lunatics. Um, <laughs> there were there were in fact um, a few additional members that didn't make the album cover. Me and Murphy Lee, yeah, uh, yeah. There's still some cl- SoundCloud stuff out there, I'm sure. Um, I think the whole fitness thing is like interesting, I guess, from a technical uh, achievement perspective. But to me, I feel like. I feel like we reached what we needed to reach a long, long time ago in terms of how thin watches actually need to be. I feel like, uh, you know, I have a, I have a Cartier tank from the nineties that's got sort of the thin FP Piguet 21 movement or whatever it's called. And the movement itself is probably 1.75, uh, millimeters thick. And then yeah. that means the watch itself is probably four and a half or five millimeters in thickness. So it wears super thin. At least you can still kind of feel it on the wrist, but I feel like to me, the the ultra slim dress watches of the you know call it the 50s through the 90s that that brands like Cartier and others did is kind of that's as far as we we actually needed to go the rest of it is kind of um uh a dick measuring contest i don't know if we could say that on on our podcast i don't know if that's i don't know if we have any sort of explicit explicit parental, uh, warning parental advisory yeah yeah so so parents pull out the earmuffs for that one for a second i suppose but I, that's what it's been for the last 20 or 30 years and you know look there's some merit to it of course uh and i think it's fun to see the all of the brands going back and forth piaget and richard mill and, and everyone else um but, but from a practicality perspective it's it's not super interesting to me um you know i think we talk a lot about wearable watches and all that type of stuff on this podcast and uh you know to gabe's point nothing super wearable about this thing you're probably more likely to get a get a paper cut than anything else and i think to your point you know you know not not to drive this one the point home but with with all this you know you have to pull out the the thing to wind them which is like okay you know it's a different contest but you gotta have the pump to like make it go it's not uh it's not the best it's not the best system because it's not not friendly for usability i mean the same thing with you know the piaget the winding stuff and we've seen other people you know do the have these like little you know, uh, whatever these, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, what are they called? Drill Screw guns. Like, drill guns, yeah, yeah. Drill guns, essentially, for they're kind of imitating what the, um, the yeah. blow stop kind of changing the tires or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, because, because uh, Akari, you know, Akari has the really tough crowns to wind and he makes them super sharp. And one time, he, I think he was telling me that he sold one to a uh, an elderly gentleman who didn't, who had like, arthritis or something and couldn't wind it so he made him like this 
this like really elaborate crank <laughs> to like and and then he had to like also create because he couldn't hold the watch while he was cranking it so he had to like have this specially made the you know little case to put the watch and then connect it and then wind it up <laughs> like this cool thing and i think that that's that is a lot more charm than whatever these solutions are that that are you know silly but um, yeah i mean if, if if you can't wind it and set it without an extra tool kind of kind of doesn't work for me i'll say it it's all lame it's always been lame since i've been alive i don't know I do like like learning about the old movements that are like the APs taking over like the thinnest manual line movement, whatever it was, either the like caliber 2001 or 2003 or something like that. It's cool to look back in the mid 19th or the mid 20th century to look back at it. But all nowadays, it's just boring. Next subject. Well, <laughs> all right. Maybe I just want to know. Yeah, I, sorry on that one. I just want to know what what would be the the thinnest possible movement and watch to assemble as much you know by hand as much as possible in you know without the aid of you know CAD or without the aid of uh, you know CNC machining because I feel like that a kind of that that would be much more interesting to me than seeing how how small our CNC machine can carve out all the plates. Well, moving on to the next independent release, since Charlie uh, so quickly transitioned us out of that one. So smoothly, I should say. I think one of the ones I was excited about, Gabe, I'd love to get your thoughts, though, was Gronefeld released their first chronograph. I think they're calling it the Gronograph, which has this like regulator-type mechanism that, from my understanding, basically makes it so that when the chronograph function resets, it resets uh, more softly so that it's not as harsh on the on the mechanism itself and then they've got kind of the little regulator circle on the dial so you can see it working i think it's super cool in action but gabe what do you think oh man i love this one i really love this one first of all before we get to you know anything on the dial side have you seen that movement oh it is it is a beauty that i mean Gronfeld make all their movements are are delicious but this one i mean this is this is a special one um yeah it's a really cool system and because uh, i mean you know when when you do the reset the friction from the steel hammers it wears off and so um, eric i know I, i'm sure you know this with a lot of the vintage watches over time you'll get this like sort of quasi reset when you reset it it kind of misses and then you have to do it a couple like, extra hard um so they created this regulator system to basically ease it back so that way it would minimize that wear and it looks really nice and it's actually really cool because the reset looks like it's going in slow motion because we're used to these super fast resets or these you know flybacks that just go boop and so this is nice and you can kind of see that it doesn't go past the it doesn't hit past the the zero it's um and you know they're it's kind of becoming their signature the um you know the regulator on the dial side uh, i i think that the dial what they've done with the the dial side is also extremely good looking with all of these you know e- even the way that they did um the logo Ronenfeld, the netherlands and you know with all the sub dials and even the um you know the 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 power reserve with that sort of blue needle that looks almost like it's floating when you look at it uh from the, from an angle i think it's i i 
I think this is probably my favorite release of the year. I would say. I think it, it is. It is special, special, special. So I'm I'm very excited about this. I'm not so excited about the price, but I, I still think it's it's really nice. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, and just to give the price so people know, hundred fifty five thousand euro in tantalum. And that's 188 pieces. Um, oh, sorry, in steel, it's 188 pieces and 155,000 euro. And then in tantalum, it's 25 pieces and 165,000 euro. By the way, I think the euro and the dollar are basically at parity now. So all our American listeners, get out there and put down your deposit now <laughs> while you can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have, it's a good uh, play to convert some portion into euros and sell it back when it when it pops again. I have a friend in Paris, and she just told me that she's enjoying shopping there for the first time in a long time because of the pricing. Charlie, Eric, anything else you want to add on the Gronefeld? No. no. The logical thought would be you buy that tantalum one just because you ten thousand euro more and a lot less of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just that's, I mean, it's really cool on the brand's perspective. But for me, I just think about that. And I'm like, why would I buy the steel one when there's 187 that have the same one as me and I could get a tantalum that's way rarer. And I flip it and then I make millions of dollars and buy all of the Tudor Rangers that I want. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so Charlie has seamlessly transitioned us into the next release. Uh, man, you are really moving us along today, Charlie. This is great. Eric said he's got a hard stop it too, and I'm that's I'm right. So we're it. ripping through. We're ripping through these releases. Okay, Tudor Ranger. They released a new Ranger in 39 millimeters a couple of years after they discontinued the Heritage Ranger, which was, uh, uh, you know, I think we can all agree, not the most attractive watch. That was at 41 millimeters. They've downsized it a little bit. Abomination. It, the, the 41 millimeter one. It was an it was Eric so will say it. It was an abomination. Uh, <laughs> insane. Eric, Eric, Charlie, what do you guys think of the new 39 millimeter one? I think the dial looks very nice, much nicer than I expected in terms of loom applied directly to the dial. That for me is the most exciting thing because Rolex Tudor haven't done that in a long time. And the way they even applied it was very vintage looking like the 80s Rangers. I was very uh, thrilled with that. And the loom color looked pretty nice too. Overall, I think just kind of a a little too big personally for me at 39 millimeter. Obviously I can understand the commercial appeal at that size, but um, uh, it's a cool, good watch. Like it's a great entry point watch for someone like the black Bay 58. It's a great beater watch, etc. So yeah, I was happy with it. The one thing I was going to say on the dial, I love the applied uh, or the painted loom, as you said, I think it might look a little, uh, empty or spaced out the whole dial being printed like that and it being you know such a large dial at 39 millimeters it's hard to tell in in photos i've seen some photos where it looks good others where it looks kind of bad so i I wait until i see it in person to pass any judgment there obviously i would have liked to see it in 36 millimeters the original was 34 which Obviously, I'm I'm kind of a realist, and I realize Tudor's not about to release a 34 millimeter sports watch. Um, you know, I'm a 36, 37, 38 would have been would have been right in my sweet spot. The old 39 millimeter Rolex Explorer was a little too big for my taste, and I imagine yeah, this wears too big, pretty similar. So, 
you know, for me, I think the 39 millimeter Black Bay 58 is probably still a better option. Uh, probably wears a little bit better, a little bit smaller with the the aluminum bezel on it. But glad that the Ranger name is back. Glad that they're taking it seriously. They've pulled a nice classic sort of Hans Wilsdorf trick by tying it to this Greenland expedition thing, which happened like 10 or 15 years before the Ranger was ever a thing in their line, which is, you know, kind of what they've done with the Explorer and the Mount Everest expedition and with other types of things, kind of this, this marketing, um, you know, building a marketing narrative after, after the fact, which is just totally fine. You know, we're all buying a story here. So I'm glad the Ranger's back. Maybe they'll make it a little bit smaller in the future. And until then, I, I won't be a buyer. But, you know, the reality is they're going to sell a ton of these things. They're going to sell a ton of those Black Bay Pros. And, um, you know, Tudor seems to be firing on all cylinders. Where can people go to learn about the Tudor Ranger? <laughs> wow, thanks, Charlie. You've really teed me up. So I wrote a nice, well, in my opinion, a nice article about the vintage Tudor Ranger, uh, if if that's of interest to anyone. Uh, a couple of years ago, because it's such a it's sort of an enigma, the vintage Tudor Ranger. I think for a while people didn't know a lot about it, and you know there were questions about whether the the Red Ranger, you know, when there's red text or the Ranger text is in red at six o'clock, if those were a real thing. There was some forum rumor that they might be real, which seems to be not the case. So for the longest time, there were all of these rumors and and misinformation flying around about the Tudor Ranger. But I went through all of the references a couple of years ago and tried to tried to provide some photos from collectors and from Eric and from, from other people uh, to, to explain the Tudor Rangers so people can go out and buy them with a little bit more confidence. And, you know, people like Eric and Hodinki and others have, have listed a good amount of obviously legitimate Rangers over the past couple of years. So there continues to be more reference points and information out there about the Ranger. Um, but I've got a nice article if anyone wants to just read a little bit more about it. To that point though, Eric, I'm kind of curious when there's a, release like this like the Tudor ranger like a modern re-release of a vintage watch do you get any substantial uptick in inquiries about the vintage model maybe if i had posted one or had one for sale right now i would say i've probably sold more rangers than any dealer the last five years it's something i try to focus on uh finding best possible rangers i love them Tony, you're, you have one of the best ones I've sold. It's a sick one. Um, that and Abercrombie and Fitch Seafarers, I would say I've sold more than an unit else easily the last five years. Uh, those are two uh, win vintage specials. But um, yeah, I think uh, certainly people I've sold Rangers to were very happy. Got a lot of wrist shots uh, that day from people putting on their vintage Rangers. Um, and uh yeah i mean i think it's it's a great watch the thing that really stuck out to me that i liked are the font is really the font for the six and the nine it's very kind of vintage inspired very interesting the bottom of the six versus the top of the six is kind of more looping i love it and was very impressed with whoever settled on that font for the numerals um but yeah i didn't love the red seconds tip I don't. I think that's kind of unnecessary and visually distracting. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the infamous Red Ranger. Uh, I was trying to think of a rhyme for the Red Ranger because um, there's a rhyme with coral snakes that red next to yellow kills a fellow that I always have ingrained in my mind. If you're out in the, you know, and you see a snake, 
you know, you see that sometimes in Florida, you want to make sure red and yellow are not touching on the stake. It's like if only red next to ranger uh, will kill danger, you. Danger, 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 red on ranger, danger, danger. <laughs> That's good. That's perfect. I typed it in the box like 30 seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Eric, of the vintage rangers, which one is your your favorite you know there's date models there's no date models there's some super rare ones that are manual wind and not automatic do you have a do you have a favorite to to wear or to sell i actually prefer the automatics because there's a little more heft with it i've had some of the, the hyper rare manual wind models they're a little bit thinner but the watch is obviously 34 millimeters so we don't need to take any heft out of it um and i just find putting on an automatic watch a little more convenient when it's in a Rolex Oyster case. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I prefer the early no-date automatic models, including yours. Yeah, one of the things missing from the dial text, or from the modern dial, in my opinion, is I would have loved to see the smiley face on the dial, which uh, I think Modern Tutor uses that in, or they used it in when there was an ETA movement inside, so it's not something you would see now that they're adding yeah. Now that they're using their their in-house or Kinesi movements, so it's not something you would necessarily see anymore. But yeah, I mean, it's a great value proposition at $3,000 or whatever it is on a bracelet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm over, the, I'm over the moon on that watch. But specifically, there's another topic that I think we need to address. Well, go ahead, Charlie. Don't leave us hanging. What is it? Big news coming out. Brace yourself. It's unfortunate that... Uh, <laughs> You will not be able to order your Moon Swatch Omegas online, unfortunately. So very devastating news. Do we we knew that, that for a while, though. Oh, it was official, I thought. But they said that months ago. Yeah, I mean, we, we all kind of knew it was happening, but I guess they there was a uh, press release. It probably comes... Well, maybe there was a press release. I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it, this may just be coming from Fratello... Uh, did an interview with with Hayek, the CEO, who said, you know, they're not going to be selling the Moon Swatch online anymore because of how much they value the in-person experience and all of this type of stuff. So interesting interview if you want to check it out. But that's that's the latest on the Moon Swatch, one of our favorite beats here to talk about on significant watches in addition to, you know, the watch that must not be named with the blue dial. Um, so that's that. Are there any other releases that you guys want to talk about before we move on to, to other business of the day? Uh, I think we should just touch upon quickly. There was the new HYT, and uh, I think it's interesting for two reasons. One, it looks like a Cirrus. And two, uh, the new CEO of HYT is Davide Tirato from Mont Blanc. So maybe there's an adult in the room finally at that brand who will actually get them to uh, do something. Uh, and the only reason why it's actually interesting is that it's a doesn't look like any other HYT and so I think the brand is trying has understood that they can't be a one trick pony anymore um, and so we'll see what, what that yields. Do I like the watch? Uh, no. It's as Hodinkee put it, an exercise in uh, luminescence and that's it um, but otherwise uh, let's see what they do. I, I'm always, you know, I, I like indies so let's see where that goes. Maybe Davide can write that uh, ship and then uh, HYT great again. 
Well, implying that it was great. Uh, I mean, you know, I I was an early supporter. I had, uh, I had uh, serial number 007 of the HYTH1 back in the day. Um, 007. That's great. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it was funny because, you know, if it was too hot, too cold, they would speed up, it would slow down. It it was like, you know, it was quirky. It was charming, that kind of unwearable way, but still, um, the other thing that we need to touch upon is Grubel had another release with their um, with their Turbion twenty four seconds. They had um, this again. It's wholly unwearable. It's this sandwich case where they have uh, sapphire in in the mid case, and uh, you know the, it's cool to look down and see you know the dial side architecture, which is relatively rare for most brands and and is sort of their calling card. However. Damn text around the bezel uh, of the watch is is atrocious. The the font and I think it is it's so pompous. I think it it, it just comes off so bad. And you know I had always wanted. I had a I had a big hockey puck Grubel double tourbillon, and I had asked them because they had they had done the engravings on the side of the case with plates. So if you had a screwdriver, you could take them off. But I had asked them to make me plates that basically in ancient French that just basically cursed me out and like said the most vile things possible. Cause you know, they take these things a little bit too seriously. And you know, I, I think they're they're They've taken that a little bit too far on this one. Um, but uh, defending the secondary market is so important for brands and that's something Richard meal so that people would feel good buying it. And that's such a, drop in the bucket, you know, compared to the marketing budget and everything else to make sure that the five to 10 watches that might come up for auction per year go above retail. You can always resell those watches, obviously, um, as pre-owned to someone or gift them or whatever you want. But um, that is, uh, that's so important. Obviously, long, uh, really did not do that as we've talked about with datagraph selling for like 30,000 after someone, you know, spends $110,000 on it. Um so yeah, I mean I think Grubel really needs to somehow try to defend that secondary market. They need probably capital to do that and some backers to do that, but um it's not going to really take off as a brand until they can figure that out and I think until they make watches that are a little bit more wearable in terms of sizing. It's a shame because they started that with the, you know, the signature series. And even though it wasn't a full on Grubel, you know, it's not that hard to swap the big balance wheel for a tourbillon. Um, You know, I mean, everybody else makes torbs under 48, seven millimeters. So I I think, I think they'll, I think they can manage with the amount of R and D that they've got going on. But I, I think, I think, like you said, the, the, problem is twofold one is it's unwearable for most people who don't look like Stephen Forsay who who's you know he's like six six and like you know a good 260 looks like a big rugby player and if you've ever seen his his wrist he actually makes the watches look like a 38 on a normal person's wrist yeah and so I always got the feeling that he was making watches for his wrist as opposed to (laughs) anybody else's wrist um but you know when, when you run into one of these in the you know one of these in the wild they really do look ridiculous on the wrist and 
you know, I'm saying this from the point of view of somebody who who's owned one for many years, and it, it, you know, and then I remember with the double turbion when they made the full uh, sapphire case, they blew it up another three millimeters to like fifty, and you're like, <laughs> you're like, okay, I'm spending over a million bucks to have a different case that's cool case, whatever, but. It's like uh, 50, uh, damn 50 millimeter case. And of course, you know, they bought back the shares for from, you know, the other outside investors. And instead, they could have probably used that capital to seriously defend the secondary market or maybe put it to expanding, you know, the signature line. And, you know, I, I gather that the sport line did relatively well. The problem is that it's just way overpriced for, you know, the base one, which is the balance wheel at, you know, at a hundred and whatever it is, $165,000, it starts to be totally ridiculous and unjustifiable. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a line that, that they've crossed with some of their pricing there, especially given what the secondary pricing is. It's, you know, I, I mean, imagine if that's like your life savings there and you're going to, get that awesome Grubel and then, you know, have to sell it at 65, 70 off, which is, you know, what they're, what, what people are picking them up for on secondary market. Well, now that we've successfully buried Grubel 4C, um, I think we're at a good stopping point for this episode. I know that Charlie is moving us swiftly through the agenda because he's got much better things to do for, for Eric and, and I'm sure Eric has better things to do as well. Just no. kidding. We love talking to you guys. Charlie has a general disdain for our audience. I think um, it comes from a place of love though. So if you have any negative comments or constructive criticism, please send it to at strictly vintage watches and he'll be happy to not respond to you. Um, <laughs> no. And then uh, last thing we would welcome any positive reviews. Charlie <laughs> wants to say reviews generally. Uh, or negative. Or, or any Spotify. review. I don't welcome negative reviews, but we do have to sit and take it if someone wants to give it to us. So um, those are available. We're trying to become the number one uh, watch podcast in the world. <laughs> and uh, we need those reviews to do that. <laughs> It's tough. A new watch podcast launches probably every week. So we're, we're, we're trying though. We're trying to stay ahead of the competition with our, with our blue Yeti microphones and, and everything else. So yeah, leave the reviews. Thanks everyone for tuning in to listen to us, talk new watches. And if I we'll can give here. one more, one more plug, uh, make sure to check out Tony's first YouTube video uh, on the Cartier crash. We discussed it already, but, was really good. I'm hoping his second video will be about the Tudor Ranger. Uh, that would be a good one. I think it has to be now. I think the clicks are the clicks will present themselves. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, we got to get your video up to a thousand views. We can do it, people. I can see the headline now. What Tudor got wrong about the new Ranger? I who wouldn't click on that? Um, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, wow. Thanks for everyone for sticking with us. Episode 20, and we'll be back again next week to talk more uh, in the world of watches.